I remember when I was growing up and, you know, either people would hear my parents' accent or they'd ask where I'm from because, you know, if you're black in Canada, you got to actually be from somewhere else, even if you say you're born here, where are you actually from? And being Jamaican was seen as something fun and, oh, Bob Marley and, oh, so you smoke weed and those types of things, which gave me some interesting social capital growing up in London in a way because it was the cool thing. It was so cool. But what I found missing was nobody wanted to take my culture more seriously. This is So What Are You? They don't have just one culture. So even if you say you're born here, where are you actually from? It's not even speaking Pato. I'm gonna know what that is. How do I recover? Make the food. Why aren't you curious? Why doesn't anyone want to know? A six-part series that explores our complex relationships to our cultural identities. I'm Melissa Houghton. Today, we're talking about the suburbs particularly how where you live can strengthen or affect your relationship to your culture. At the start of the episode, you heard the voice of B. Kwame. B is a Jamaican-Canadian writer, radio host, and media commentator whose work I've been following online for some time. So I was very excited that we got the chance to sit down and talk about culture as it relates to being people of Jamaican descent in Canada. We heard an excerpt from her piece in the previous episode. Bee grew up in London, Ontario, which is, if you're not familiar, a small-ish university town not known for being particularly ethnically diverse compared to a city like Toronto. Toronto often feels like you're playing some sort of exercise in six degrees of separation. This couldn't have felt more true than when I interviewed my cousin Zimbo, who, like Bee, talked about their experience living in London, Ontario. So London was a trip and a journey, a rites of passage as a Black person. And I will say that I didn't always feel like I belonged. Yeah, I ended up having a lot of Black folks who were slightly older reach out to me and grab me into their cohorts to make sure I was somewhat safe. (laughs) Because London is a very conservative city. It's very waspy and people do not want you near their honey nor their money. Like B and Zimble, I grew up in the suburbs. The suburbs were perceived as safer, more spacious, and the place to be for young families who grew tired of the hustle and bustle of the city life. My dad claimed to never have wanted to leave the city. And you can hear more about his experience growing up in Toronto in uh, the previous episode. But he deferred to my mom and westward they went. I won't deny, I am absolutely privileged to have grown up somewhere that was fairly safe with parks where I could ride my bike. But from a cultural perspective, it wasn't exactly an ethnic or cultural utopia. We used to have to drive to a neighboring city, Brampton, to get any of our Caribbean groceries because there was nowhere in the area to get them. And in my elementary school classes, I was one of a few black kids. I won't bore you with the stories we've heard before about this experience, being teased for hair, having different food, etc. All those hallmarks were there for me. But I will also be honest about doing that to other kids because being othered is very often internalized. And in hindsight, I realized that I probably teased other kids to escape from my own feelings. There's no excuses for that. But I know why it wasn't easy fall back. 
Elementary school was also the time when my mom died. And while I can remember a lot of elements from that time, the years following kind of melted into a blur where in hindsight, I can definitely say I lost a lot of myself. But I've also heard from people both in this series and outside of it who have spoken about how the suburbs have been a challenging place to grow up from a cultural perspective. And we're gonna hear from some of those people in this episode. I first talked about this subject with my cousin Zippo. We grew up together but lost touch for a number of years before reconnecting as adults, which has been super affirming. We chatted about how our own unique experiences in the suburbs had a lot of similarities. Zimbal grew up in Brampton, which is a neighboring city to the city that I grew up in, which was Mississauga. We were talking about this idea of loosely called or associated with reverse migration in terms of people of color moving out of the city and to the suburbs as a way to kind of gain upward mobility or as a symbol of upward mobility, but also how difficult that can be if you're particularly in a suburb that can not help with your sense of cultural identity. So can you can you speak more to that? Uh, one of the difficulties that I had um, being in the suburb was I didn't get to connect to my Jamaicanness as much just because it wasn't celebrated in the same way. Just like different things like I remember going to high school and like a lot of my friends who were more connected with their roots, the way they would dance and enjoy different dance hall songs and things like that. I could never play that at home because that was something that's seen as a bad thing. And it, I think, stopped me from really enjoying the richness of my culture. We were coming up with the rise of the internet, so information wasn't accessible as it is now, and certainly not with that dial-up. Zimbal's dad is my uncle, so I feel like both of our fathers came from a similar frame of mind. As my dad mentioned in the previous episode, we didn't have a lot of direct ties to Jamaica from my dad's side. And while we did have more of that connection on my mom's side of the family, we didn't see them very much after she passed. Being in the suburbs, aside from hanging with the few friends I had who were of similar background, there weren't too many outlets that you could find a connection to your heritage if you didn't already have one. In fact, from what I remember, we didn't even really have a Jamaican restaurant in our neighborhood until I was in the seventh grade. And one of my friends still swears by this restaurant. It's a restaurant that I personally don't like, but once again, I digress. Speaking of seventh grade, grade school was so full of learning that happened so far outside of the bounds of the classroom. I can recall learning quickly who were the people who had stronger ties to their countries of origin, and they always knew the latest trends and dances. I also figured out where and when to code switch, and how our cultural backgrounds were viewed by others in positive and negative ways. remember I think it was grade four maybe grade three and that's when you kind of start to pick the patois that you learned from like your parents and like your cousins and stuff like that so I remember being in school and we were in a line or something going upstairs and like I was just like with my like white friends we were pushing or shoving or whatever and then I was like yo don't make me lick you eh and then they didn't understand that translation obviously so they're like ew you're gonna lick me like why would you actually lick me like an ice cream comb but no that's not what I meant I just meant I'm gonna hit you because that's how Jamaica 
can say hit, they say lit. So just growing up being young and kind of trying to use that lingo on a culture that obviously won't understand it, I feel like being young, that's kind of your first introduction to cultures. Like whether you're trying to decipher the difference between your culture and white cultures or okay, I can't use this lingo because they're not gonna understand. Not because they don't know, but it's like that's not how they speak with their culture, you know? This is my very good friend, Matt. He is also the friend in question who likes the Jamaican restaurant where we grew up that I don't really like. All that to say, we met in middle school and what he's speaking about is kind of a fact that I feel like a lot of people have told me and that I've experienced about growing up in the suburbs is that you really learn what's safe to share about yourself and what doesn't feel so safe. And that can have major implications on how you view and behave in relation to your cultural background later on in life. Similar to Matt's story, B remembers an encounter with her daughter that she realized would have implications on how she would view her culture going forward. We speak a lot of Patois at home, so she picks up different Patois words and sayings and stuff like that. And nyam was one of, like, it still is one of her favorite words. She'll say, oh, I nyamed off all my lunch today. I did this, whatever. Yeah, and I love it, right? But she doesn't understand that not everybody speaks like that. So it was last summer, we were at Camera Restaurant, and she was just eating some pasta. It was like a kid's meal. So she gets her pasta and her drink and then you get dessert. And she like ate up all the pasta. And when the server came back around, she was like, excuse me. And she showed him the plate. And she's like, I nammed off all my pasta. Can I have my ice cream now? And this poor white guy looked at her and like looked at me because he didn't know what she was talking about. And he's like, is it okay that I bring the ice cream? And I was like, yeah, bring it. And then my daughter was like, what's wrong with him? I just said I nammed off my pasta. <laughs> but I had to have a conversation with her getting her ready for school because I knew that if she said oh I need to go and yam a snack her teachers are not gonna know what yam means and understanding what it's like as a black child going into the school system where people are quick to call CAS I didn't want her to go into school and talk about yam and this and that and people think okay this child can't speak English we need to put her in you know in a program Meanwhile, I recognize that if she went in there talking about je mange and, you know, like using French and Italian words, they'd be like, oh, this child's a genius. So I said, let's keep some words at home when you're with family and other words, you know, we'll say the other things when you're at school just to kind of bridge that gap. And then as she gets older, then I can help her work out how to infuse her culture naturally the way she usually wants to. So I'm trying to even figure out how do I go about it to not even plant a seed that there's something wrong with it for her because I don't want to feed into that hierarchy. So it's just something that I'm very cognizant of and I maintain her pride in her culture and the way she speaks and the words that we use, but just trying to navigate with, okay, but the outside world, what are they gonna think when they hear that or they see you saying that? One of the themes that emerged from talking to people for this series was the internalization of certain things that associated Jamaican culture with badness or slackness. Thinking about it now, to me this seems deeply rooted in stereotypical ideas that have been internalized likely over a long time. It's also interesting to see the generational differences. 
which really puts the spotlight on why it's not as simple as to completely reject why some older Caribbean folks were made to feel this way when they first came to Canada, when hiding an accent was a matter of survival and assimilation wasn't something that people had the luxury to reject. B remembers a conversation with her mom that touches on this exact idea. My father, I mean, if you meet him today, he's been here in Canada at least 30 years, but he can sound just like he just came yesterday. My mom, on the other hand, she came a bit younger, so she was able to kind of assimilate a little bit more. So she's able to kind of do the speaky spoky twang and she's, then she can kind of turn it on, turn it off. And her and I had an interesting conversation maybe a couple years ago that inspired a different piece I wrote where she had kind of a more contentious relationship with Patwa itself because when she grew up, it was kind of like, you don't speak like that if you want to have a good job. And through my lens of, you know, being a millennial and thinking about respectability politics, I got into an argument with her saying, well, Patois is like a verified language. Like it has linguistic rules that fit a language itself. So how can you say that that is something that you're ashamed of? Or not to say she was ashamed, but something that was kind of denigrated or was put aside to say, we don't talk like that because we are trying to do this and that and, and excel. Cause she was getting kind of frustrated with me. And she said, you know, we just had to do what we had to do to survive. And that's when it clicked for me that it's a very different time that when she was growing up in Jamaica and even when she came to Canada as far as what you needed to do to just be able to get to the next day so I could understand that. Sometimes it's not easy to see how much shame you might have internalized with regards to how you feel about your culture until someone else points it out. And that's not always an easy conversation to have, but that also means that you even know that it's happening. More often than not, the first experiences that we have with this occur when we're fairly young. So it's only after examination years down the line do we actually understand the effects of how we came to feel ashamed about particular aspects of who we are. And Matt told me a story that I think illustrates this pretty interestingly. I remember in grade six, maybe grade five, but I think it was grade six, my teacher asked if anyone in the class speaks different languages. And my dumbass put my head up. And he was like, Matthew, what languages do you speak? And I said, English, of course, and Patois. And he was like, Patois? I was like, yeah, it's the Jamaican language. And he's like, it's more like an accent or slang, but sure, I'll give it to you. Yeah, that happened. But do you feel like, I think there are a lot of people who would argue that it does have like its own linguistic patterns and its own words that are unique. And do you feel like also, particularly because we grew up in an area that was mostly white or non-black, that maybe that gave you a, a feeling that it wasn't to be taken seriously? I mean, yeah. Like, I feel like that made me think that it wasn't really its own language. It was more like like slang or just like a cultural, like it was still English and you're able to like decipher almost like an accent. Like people in Brooklyn, obviously they have their own slang, but they have their own way of saying things. Stories like the one Matt just told are a big reminder of just how much something said even in passing in your formative years can have a super large impact. I think growing up I struggled sometimes with feeling like since my dad wasn't born here that I should have a stronger connection to Jamaica. And people have said as much over the years. And as a result, I felt ashamed in one sense because I kind of felt like a Jafakin. Also, not really sure what the definition of being Canadian actually was, but even still, I just didn't know if I felt like I fit it from a cultural standpoint. So I definitely spent some years not really knowing whether I should or even could 
rep my roots. And as a result, I think I downplayed my cultural identity a lot when people would ask. And I've seen a similar pattern with my younger brother. He's five years younger than me and I am the older sister, so I did experience a lot of things first, for better and for worse. But there are some things that I kind of wish he didn't have to go through, particularly when it comes to not entirely feeling sure of yourself. So I, of course, was curious to hear how my brother responded to the so what are you question. Someone asks, what's your background? What do you say? Well, I usually start by saying, like, I'm Canadian first. And then you know, if anyone wants to dig a little deeper, I'll usually say, like, you know, I'm, I'll go further and explain, like, oh, I'm English and Jamaican as well. So a little bit of both, for sure. Although, on a technicality, we're actually British, not English, because we don't have English heritage. At least I don't think so. But, yeah, I feel like it's British. That's good to, that's good to know my mistake there. No, I mean, not that it's a hating type of thing but just because like English I feel like is people who are like of English blood but technically that was something I was thinking about like we don't really know too much of how everyone even arrived in England don't you think? Yeah for sure but I think also you know being born here is an opportunity as well to kind of delve deeper and really I guess you know remember that I guess we're born here too and then expanding on our roots from there as well. In a way, I envy my brother's contentment with the fact that he's just fine to say Canadian. But for me, it has never really felt that simple. I mean, he's not wrong, he can do whatever he wants, but maybe it's just my personality type to always want to dig deeper. I want to know more about where we come from, and recently I realized that none of my grandparents are living, and we've lost a lot of other family members prematurely. So I think for me it's about wanting to feel grounded in something, and that's probably gonna take more than a few years. In fact, it's probably a lifelong journey to be honest. If you listened to the previous episode, also known as the first episode of this series, then you would know that the one thing that we've always said about our family is that we love the arts, specifically music. I personally don't play any instruments, but I do love listening to and discovering new music, and my cousin Zimble performs under the name Rflex, and they are a great performer and singer. My brother plays the drums, my dad plays the piano, while my brother and I both appreciate jazz as it was what we listened to a lot growing up, that's pretty much where our musical overlap ends. So I asked him, as far as culturally speaking, where do his musical tastes lie? I think musically I, I kind of attach more to the British side where, you know, where it's being like the punk movement and I like recently got into London Calling a bit by The Clash and, and that kind of iconic photo with Bowie and Queen and, and Genesis and Gabriel and Collins and ACC. Anyway, I think just like the other side being like the Jamaican heritage and even like the black artists from England and, and stuff from that time. Not just MFDM, but um, again, I think music brings in a lot of access points and, and brings people together. So I think that's that's very important to, to have. My brother is right. Music is an important way for people to connect with one another, but it's also an important way for people to connect with themselves, particularly in a cultural sense. For me, it's been really interesting to see people in my generation and even younger who are doing the work, whether through music or the arts or other fields, to retain and connect with aspects of their culture. For my friend Zoe, this meant making a deliberate effort to keep her accent when she moved to Canada a few years ago. 
Yeah, I think one of the reasons why I have my accent is because I was determined to not lose my accent. A lot of people do it the other way. Like they're determined to lose their accent so that they will be less hyper visible, right? And maybe this is because I was in Vancouver and so far removed from anything Caribbean, anything black. Like I was like, if I can't see myself reflected in the culture here, like I'm going to preserve that within myself. final takeaway from talking to this group of people was that learning is eternal. We can't change the cultures we were born into, but we can choose to figure out how we want to exist in relation to them. Even my own brother seems to be on his own path towards this. Is there anything that you feel like you want to learn more about? I think more of like the Jamaican culture in general, but you know, there's a lot of stuff I don't, I didn't know, I didn't know kind of thing. And having friends and even family like you guys to be able to ask, you know, questions and to really shed light. I think just having like a hunger for the knowledge as well is, is very important. So being hungry to like figure out who you are and understand that sort of side is important as well. Often when we think of lessons, we think of learning the hard way. But for Zimbal, there's a lot to be said about learning when joy is involved. We learn when we're happy, I think. I mean, we learn when we're sad too, but I feel like you have to find the lesson, right? And so, and that should bring some form of delight, even if it's like my note. For B, it's about looking to what the future generations, including her daughters, have the power to do. And you know, when I think about my kids and when I think about other young people who are coming up, I would hope that people are more open and feel more comfortable sharing their culture. Like if my daughter's in school talking about she's yamming her lunch, it's not a thing, it's not an issue. I wanna see in the education system more willingness to include, I mean, black history and black culture as a whole, but also, particularly here in Canada, the Caribbean impact that we have had. There's so much that I was never taught in school that I have had to learn myself and realize, wow, if I had just heard this in grade three, or if I heard this in grade seven, like this would have been a game changer for me. I wanna see more of that because that creates a sense of pride and that creates a sense of belonging and, and situation. Like our kids can feel like they're situated in Canada because there's this history. For me, I just felt like we didn't exist in Canada. Like, like, thinking about my family, we didn't exist until my parents came here and then they had us. And it felt like, well, before that, okay, then I don't know, I'll just learn about all these white people's history. But not knowing there's so much history there that had I known, it would have given me a different foundation as far as what my relationship with Canada is as the child of Jamaican parents. So I'm hoping that in, in those systems that have a lot of power, we are seeing more openness. I know at York University, they actually have a class, I think, on like Patois, so you can take a class. I'm seeing kind of in the justice industry where courts are hiring people who speak patois so that they can be like translators right like we need more of that to embed our culture into just the everyday runnings of life and, and runnings in this city and in this country at large now that we're starting to see more people, more black folk, more people of Caribbean descent who are able now to hold positions of power in different places, I think that's going to be a game changer. Not to say that, well, just put a Jamaican person, make a Jamaican person prime minister and all is going to be well. That doesn't necessarily mean anything because their thought process might still be following the old guard. But I feel that and I am meeting people now who 
are really trying to push forth like a revolution and who are being strategic about using their positions to dismantle and rebuild things. And I want to see more of that continue. On the next episode, everybody want to claim Toronto slang, but nobody wants to claim its originators. So what do we do when people get too familiar? So What Are You was produced, written, and edited by yours truly, Melissa Houghton, with music from Fugue, Ryan Little, Silent Partner, Katza, Himalaya, and Dural. For more information about this series and to see links to some of the things I mentioned, you can visit my website, which is melissahaughton.com. That's M-E-L-I-S-S-A-H-A-U-G-H-T-O-N.com. If you're enjoying the series, please leave a review and tell your homies. You can also follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Melissa H-A-U-T-E. Thanks for listening.